This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, June 19th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Do you have a seat and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We're going through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, taking little breaks every now and then after about, I don't know, 10, 15 chapters. I was struck... um, as I was sitting there, um, because singing that last song reminded me of my, you know, old Baptist roots, just singing old school songs. And uh, so I quickly looked up the story behind this song, and I was struck. Uh, it was written in 1925 by a guy named uh, Thomas Chisholm, and those who were uh, more uh, educated in hymn music than me probably already knew this. But I was struck that uh, when he was 36, he's a pretty ordinary guy. When he was 36, he decided to go in the ministry, but he only lasted a, a year because he was really a poor health. And he wrote, he became after that um, an insurance agent for the rest of his life, which I know doesn't sound very glorious, but this is when he penned this in like 1,200 other poems. Um, and he talked about God's faithfulness in what amounts to probably a very ordinary job. Um, and I was struck by that. And here's what he said. He explained toward the end of his life that my income has not been large at any time due to my impaired health uh, in the earlier years, which followed me until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that he has given me many, many wonderful displays of his providing care, for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. And I was just simply struck by that. We're talking about God's covenant today in Genesis 15 in particular uh, and how we're often looking for things that are quite extraordinary and it seems that God takes or makes things quite extraordinary out of that which is really quite ordinary and simple like that song. Um, it was awesome. So I want to begin though in Genesis 15 and read that whole chapter and see what God has to say to us um, this morning. Genesis chapter 15 beginning in verse 1 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's Word, and it's a good one. Our text uh, begins with the Lord, unsolicited, encouraging Abram to not fear. Fear. Fear is a pretty powerful thing. Uh, Fear has the power to govern our emotions, to shape our perceptions, and to often dictate our actions as a result. And despite the best that has happened up to whatever point fear begins to come, fear can cause us to believe the worst is going to happen next to be convinced that things are going to go horribly, even if they've gone wonderfully for a time. And we see here with the story of Abram, even when we have believed what God has promised, even when we have heard, even when we know, even when we uh, memorized what God has promised, when His promises are not fulfilled according to how we expect them to be, whether it be the way or the timing, we begin to fear. We begin to fear whether God is really going to come through for us like He said. Oftentimes, I find that we believe God is merciful, but then we're afraid to make any kinds of confession or be transparent about our sin. We believe that God is sanctifying, but then we're afraid to make any effort fear taken away from His glory or His work. We believe God is gracious, but then we're afraid to make a mistake. We believe God is generous, but we're afraid to ask Him for anything and make a request. We believe God is sovereign, but then we get so scared or afraid to make a decision for fear we fall out of His will or out of His path. It's as if we believe God or at least say we do, but then we struggle to really trust Him. And I think fear is one of those culprits. Fear is real. It can't be dismissed. I don't think it's helpful to say, oh, just don't fear. The reason why God comes and tells Abram not to fear is because there is something to be afraid of. There's something very genuine to be scared of in Abram's life right now. In Genesis 14, which we heard last week, Abram had successfully defeated and and plundered four kings as he saved his his nephew. And he'd used a very small force of 318 guys. And even though everything went well, even though he was blessed by the priest of God, it's understandable that he fears a retaliatory attack. That that's looming and that's possible and There's much to fear because he's got a lot to lose. So to calm those fears, one of the first things God says is, look, I'm your shield. 
I'm your shield, Abraham. Don't fear. I'm watching over you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to defend you. I'm your shield. Don't worry. And perhaps that assuages the fears about what could happen. But there are other fears that Abram seems to have, maybe that are even more powerful that he's fighting, more powerful than an army. Abram fears that God will not or cannot fulfill his promise because he has not yet. In Genesis 12, as we experienced or read the first call of Abraham, when, when Abraham was first called to, to follow God, to, uh, when he was chosen, if you will, out of, out of this pagan city that he lived in, in Genesis 12, he was called, and in faith, he left his country, he left his family, he left everything he knew, because God promised that I'm going to make you a great nation full of offspring, through which I'm going to bless every family of the world. And Abraham believed him, and he followed God's call, and he went to a land he had never seen. And when he arrived in the land called Canaan, it was full of God's enemies, full of Canaanites. And God again showed up, because it's probable Abraham began to fear. And unsolicited, he said, Don't worry, I'm going to give this land that you're seeing to your offspring. This will be your family's land. He promised. And then after a famine came in, Abram began to fear, and he took an ill-advised trip down to Egypt, where he tries to traffic his wife. God saves him from that. He comes back, has a family conflict with his nephew, who is now very wealthy, they separate, and again, God shows up and says, don't fear, I will give you everything you see. I will give this to your offspring. Time and time again, God has made promise about this offspring. Promise about this offspring. The first time that promise came, Abram was 75 years old. It's been 10 or 11 years since that time. It will be another 14 years, give or take, before the promise is actually fulfilled. 24 years could lead to a little anxiety, little fear. You said this, God. I'm not seeing it. Like, we give up after 24 hours, typically. 24 years is a little more, at least in a fleshly way, understandable. It's been 11 years at this point. He has zero kids. You're going to have offspring. Family's going to be huge. Dust of the earth. So many kids. You're not going to believe it. Zero after 11 years. And then God says to him, your reward's going to be great. And Abram's looking around going, what are you talking about? I don't see it. I mean, I got money. I've got possessions. I don't see it. And so Abram asks a very direct question. And he actually makes even a more direct statement. And as you read these first six verses, it's Abram basically says, what reward are you going to give me that's going to matter? You haven't given me a child. You haven't done what you said you were going to do. I know he doesn't say it that way, but that's what he's saying. Whatever reward you give me, God, is going to go to someone that's not my family. 
He's a servant in my house. Most likely, because he's from Damascus, he takes care of his finances. So he's like, my finance manager is going to get all my stuff. I have no kids. Did I misunderstand what you meant? Did I make a mistake? Did I, did I screw up too much so therefore you're not going to fulfill what you said to me? And in a response to Abram venting some very real fears, God speaks to him. But more than speaks to him, he, he preaches him the gospel. You go, wait, he preaches him the gospel, the, the good news about Jesus? Absolutely. In the most vivid of sermons, 2,000 years before the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he preaches him the gospel. And this particular chapter in this book is one of the clearest, greatest gospel texts in all the Old Testament. And my prayer is that it becomes the same kind of anchor for your faith as it was for Abram. A powerful anchor. This weird passage I just read. Now, God's first response to to Abram venting his fears is simply clarification. Abram is probably a little fearful, partially at least, that he doesn't really understand what God meant by offspring. Okay, what did you mean by offspring exactly? Is this, because I've got a servant, is it just someone in my house? Is it my nephew? What does he mean by offspring, by seed, by family, like my real family, or just people that I'm kind of related to, people I'm responsible for? What do you mean, God? I don't get it begins by telling Abram that it's going to be his real, true, flesh and blood son. It's not going to be your servant. It's not going to be your finance guy. It's not going to be your nephew. It's going to be a child from you. And he's looking at his 70, late 70s wife going, I I don't know about that. We kind of go, oh, it's different in biblical times. No, he was looking at his 70-plus-year wife and going, she's going to have a baby. I'm going to have a baby. They're going to be 90-ish before it actually happens. And he's thinking the same thing. What? How? But we'll deal with that later. But he is wondering, do you mean real offspring? And he says, yes, I mean real child, real servant. In fact, just as he compared to the dust, he takes Abraham out and says, look at the stars. Imagine... You know, without the city lights and things, if you've been out in the wilderness, you'd see the stars look countless. And he says, look up. Can you count the stars? Answer, no. That's how many kids. Your family's going to be huge. And it says something in verse 6. Hearing God's word, it says, Abram believed the Lord about what he said about this future child, this future, dare I say, Savior that would come. He believed what the Lord said, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. That is one of the most important verses in all of Christianity. As a church, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we believe we are not saved by works, but this phrase that became well known in the Reformation, by faith alone. By faith alone. Simply explained, that means that we believe that men and women, mankind, are justified. Big word. 
made right with God, reconciled with God, relationship restored, all things made right with God through trusting, not in ourselves, but what God has done for us through the death, life, resurrection of Jesus Christ. In order to be in relationship with a holy and righteous and perfect God, we need to be holy and righteous and perfect. The problem is this thing called sin. This thing that we are born with. And because of our sin, that is a problem with our hearts, not just our flesh, not just our behavior, but our hearts. We have an internal problem that affects everything we do. Because of sin, we are unable to create the righteousness that we need to be with God. We can't do it. No matter how much good we do, it will always fall short of God's standard of goodness. We make one mistake, and that's evidence to show that we are lawbreakers. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what He has done, is only good news when we understand the bad news. And the bad news is that we are sinners. The bad news is that sinners are condemned to die. The bad news is that no matter how much good we do, we will never be good enough to fix what is broken with God. We are broken. We are deficient. And whether we want to admit it or not, we are rebellious at our core. Now, in his letter to the Romans, though, Paul, in chapter 4, uses Abraham as the example of how sinners are made righteous by God through faith. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, it says this, For if Abraham, if, hypothetical, was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, it's important to remember that The moment this happens, so God's talking with Abram. God tells Abram some promises, and he believes and is counted as righteousness 430 years later. So from this moment, 430 years later, God is going to speak to another man named Moses. And he's going to give Moses this thing called the law. He's going to do it on top of a mountain. And the law is being given to, or through Moses, if you will, to God's people in order for God to have a relationship with His people and to mediate this relationship temporarily. That was including the rules of what you ought do, what you ought not do, and the rules for sacrifices so that you can have this forgiving relationship continually but temporarily. The thing that law was never designed to do was to actually save. It didn't have that power. What it did do was reveal God's righteousness and man's unrighteousness. It made it very clear that God is good and man is bad. 
but it could never and did not have the power to save. The law is good. It is awesome, but it brings very bad news. It is intended to lead us to a place where we go, I have to have a rescuer. I need someone because the law shows me God's standard and I have had enough life, which doesn't take much life, to realize I cannot do the good that that requires. I fall short in the littlest of ways and in many times the biggest of ways. I need something outside of myself to make some righteousness to give to me because I'm never going to make it. That was why Jesus came and talked to the Pharisees who thought they could. It's like, dude, you guys think you're so awesome because you don't commit adultery. Do you lust? You don't commit murder. Great, way to check that box. But you hate and you are guilty of murder in the same way. And so this is what God did. This is the good news. Again, in the book of Romans, what God says in the first verses of chapter 8 God has done. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who put our faith in Christ. That's the Gospel. It's putting your faith in the same offspring, the same Savior that Abram was putting his faith in. It is trusting in what God has done, not in what I am able to do. And according to Paul, as you read in his letter to the Galatians, he actually says this is where the Gospel was preached to Abram. It says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand. In other words, before Jesus shows up. Preached the Gospel beforehand to Abram saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. And so in this Gospel story. We see that like Abraham, rightness with God came through faith in God's Savior. Never through how good Abraham was. Never through how even faithful Abraham was. But in his trust of a Savior that would come. We are not made right by our morality. We are not made right by our great activity. We are made right with God through faith in what Christ Jesus has done for us. Now, that's so important to sit on for a second, especially as we begin to see what Abram continues to ask. Because after God clarifies his promise, and after he counts Abram's belief as righteousness, he then begins to reiterate his promise about the land that he has said. Now, land in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is a very important theme. And even in the book of Genesis, it uses variations of words to talk about it, but 400 times it's referenced. And there's a deep connection between man, Adam, and the land, Adama. Deep connection. And there's certainly geographic boundaries of the promised land, and we get them 
multiple times throughout the Old Testament, but beyond geography, the land, the promised land, and the promised seed has more to do with the kingdom and the ruling king. This is the place, this land, where God promises to dwell with His people, where He promises to be present with them. And from this place, if you will, He will bless the world. And so, after He is told the promise of the child, then He reiterates the land, a believing Abram, a faithful Abram, a righteous Abram, asks an honest question. He says, how do I know that my children will rule this land? How do I know that you will dwell with your people here? How can I know, Lord, that you will make good on this promise? That's from a believer. We fear being so honest with the Lord and His response shows us it's okay. It's okay to ask those kinds of questions. Considering the context, Abram is not asking this question. It's not birthed out of unbelief. But there is a little bit of fear there. And by God's response, it's not a question that's offensive to God. Abram's not looking for proof of God's ability. He simply wants a sign to confirm the promise that God has made. Something that he can hold on to, or perhaps something that can hold him as things get difficult. Something he can hold on to help him trust in the future. God takes this question pretty seriously. And it's incredibly powerful to see that the God of the universe doesn't just tell Abram, would you shut up and believe? Just, why are you asking? I'm God. Why are you asking me such questions? I'm not truthful. I'm not faithful. He doesn't say that. On the contrary, he graciously reveals to him how the plan is going to unfold. He pulls back the curtain a little bit, of which I've often thought, do I really want that to happen? We've asked ourselves, you know, maybe you haven't, but like, yeah, I just wish I knew how this was going to work out. I used to ask that about people who were in my life who I really wanted to see saved. I'm like, come on, can you just, can you just tell me, what, how's it going to work? All right, well, you're going to get cancer, and you're going to suffer horribly. And on your deathbed, you're going to say something about Jesus, and that's going to cause them to believe, okay, I didn't want to know that, right? I don't know if I want the curtain really pulled back. It may be too much for me to handle. But this is what he does for Abram. And I think the incredibleness of it is that you have the God of the universe, right? The creator of all things coming down to the level of his creation and by pure grace talking to what amounts to less than an ant in comparison. And so let me, let me, let me prove to you why I can, I'm faithful. Let me prove to you why you can trust me. I mean, that right there is just an incredible picture of grace that God would care enough, that He would love enough, that He would transcend enough. Wow, it sounds like Jesus coming down as the God in human flesh to live amongst His people. And you go, who? That, that's mind-blowing. And it's equally mind-blowing here. 
And what he gives Abram is so powerful. What he gives him in this moment is so powerful that in Genesis 22, which is seven chapters ahead, it is so, so much of an anchor for him that he can hold on to and that he can trust that God is going to say, that child that I promised you all those times, I know he's here now, I want you to take him up the mountain and kill him. And Abram doesn't question it, and he does it. He doesn't die. There, I just ruined the story for you. But he obeys. And you go, what would cause a man to be, like, the promise that he gave, and then to take that promise and go, I want you to go sacrifice it. What did he give Abram that caused him to be so trusting in his word? And this is what we see. The first thing he gives them is some instructions, and I'll revisit those in a second. But he begins by revealing his plan to him so that Abram will know for certain that he can trust him. And as he does, it says that a dreadful and great darkness comes upon a sleepy Abram. And there's lots of ways. You see all kinds of commentators like, it's figuratively dark, it's spiritually dark, it's literally dark. Like, sure. What we know is that things get dark, maybe in all those ways. Things get dark. And essentially, I think what is being revealed is that things are going to work out, Abram. But things are going to get worse before they get better. That's the story of the Gospel. I think all too often we believe that God is only working when things are getting lighter and brighter and better. Oh, there's the sign of God. Finally, He's bringing relief and rescue and when dark is there, we think it's the enemy or we think it's the world. What if it's the Lord? See, we usually measure the success of God's plan in the moments by how well things are going or how light things are going when many times God's plan is going very well as the darkness is unfolding. God has told him up to this point, know for certain you're going to have a child, know for certain you're going to possess this land. And then he says, know for certain that it's going to happen this way. He says, know for certain that your descendants are going to live in a different place than this land you're in. And know for certain, Abram, that they are actually going to be slaves in that land. And know for certain, Abram, they're actually going to be afflicted for 400 years in that land. And he's telling the story of the Jewish people. Abraham will have a son. Isaac, and Isaac will have a son named Jacob, and Jacob will have a son named Joseph, and Joseph will be sent to Egypt, and Egypt will be saved because of Joseph, and he'll bring his entire family down there. And after Joseph is forgotten, their family will be enslaved for 400 years to the point where their children are being thrown in the river. And God tells this plan ahead of time. That didn't surprise God. It wasn't out of his control. Darkness was part of his plan. Not to suggest he desired it, not to suggest it didn't grieve him, but never suggested it was out of his control. He says, no for certain after 400 years, after the Amorite sin is complete. What a powerful verse that is. After the people in this land currently have sinned enough, I'm going to judge the nation that is enslaved or people. I'm going to bring them out and they're going to have great possessions. And that's the story of the Exodus. When the Egyptians are pretty much throwing all their jewelry at the Jews, like, get out of here! 
and they walk out with great possessions. And then as just a little blessing, he says, don't worry, Abram, you're going to die an old man in this place in peace, rest. You won't see any of this happen. That's a blessing. But the story of the gospel is revealed in this, in that it's really the story of God's gracious rescue. That's the story of all of our individual and corporate lives. The story of this world is the story of God's gracious rescue of His people. It is a story that requires calamity, for without that there can't be a rescue. It's a story that goes from slavery to freedom. It's a story that goes from poverty to riches. It's a story that goes from living in an earthly and even spiritual kingdom of darkness and being brought into the kingdom of God which will one day have its fulfillment in a new heavens and a new earth. And God wants Abram to know for certain that, look, I'm faithful. I make promises and I'm very patient, even slow about things. Maybe a whole sermon on that. God is slow. Not the way we count slowness, but He is patient. And God is in control. And God's promises, Abram, my promises can be trusted despite what your circumstances tell you. Because He's telling them ahead of time, things are going to get bad. But you can trust my promises despite what you see. You can trust my promises despite how bad circumstances get. You can trust my promises because none of this surprised me. I'm in control and I am working. But that's not even the anchor that's given to Abram. He not only gives his word, but as we begin to see in verse 17, he binds himself with an oath. He makes a covenant contract with Abram. The God of the universe makes a covenant promise with a man. Now, generally speaking, we talk about covenant. The series is called Covenant. But generally speaking, a covenant is just that. It's an agreement. It's a, it's a, it's a compact between two groups or two parties. And a covenant's a little bit different than just a normal contract. We've lost kind of that idea, but in ancient days, it was this legally binding thing that was more legally binding than a spoken promise, but it was also more relational than just some kind of written cold contract. And typically, these covenants were sealed with some kind of ceremonial sign, some kind of iconic mark. And today, we do that. We, we sign what are like covenants. We make contracts with people and we sign our names. That's how we mark our contracts today. We have contracts that are really maybe silly, that have their benefits like Costco. We sign a membership and then we make mortgages and we make contracts with banks and we make contracts even with people and marriage covenants or contracts. But that's our signature is what binds us to that, both relationally and legally. In writing down our name on a given contract, we enter into a relationship whereby we commit ourselves to certain obliga obligations 
and then certain consequences if those obligations are not met. And depending on the you know, person that we're having to covenant with, it could be very great consequences or very little ones. Now, in ancient times, even though you'll see Abram even makes personal covenants, typically covenants were made by kind of nations and, and people groups, and they usually involved alliances between kind of unequal parties. So usually a stronger party and then a weaker party, or what we'll call a lord and what they would often call a vassal. So one was more of a servant and one was more of a king. And the lord would promise protections and, and certain provisions and things like that, and the vassal would agree and have a contribution to ensure that. So they would come into this kind of pledge, into this contract together, and the initiative of the contract was always from the stronger to the weaker, and just as we see in the case of Abram, God is the one who makes the promise. God is the one who calls. God is the one who saves. God is the one saying, I'll make this promise. Abram's not saying, hey, let's make a promise. Let's set this up. You bless me and I don't know what I'll do for you because you're God, but it would be great. It's God always initiating, God always pursuing, God confirming, and God fulfilling. It's so important that the salvation of, of mankind is about God, for God, and by God. The story of the Bible is about God, for God, and by God. It's not about us. It's about what He is doing. And so we successfully gather and worship Him when we talk about what He has done. Not about the seven steps, what you should do with your life. One step, worship God. Now you'll notice though in verses 7-11, to He tells him, after he asks that question, how will I know? He goes, alright, go get a bunch of animals. He's very specific though. Heifer, ram, all these things. Then you'll notice that Abram goes and gets them. He knows exactly what to get. Then he proceeds to cut them up, which in 2016 is weird. Okay? You're signing a, a, a loan for your house. They're like, all right, well, did you bring the ram? Then you start cutting it up. You'd be like, don't want the house. No, thank you. Right? This is weird. But what I think is noteworthy is that Abram is not Told, or he doesn't have to be told what to do with the animals. He understands. This is a very cultural thing at that time. This is how you made a covenant. And so he cuts all these animals up and he lays it like you would an aisle out, right? He cuts them open and he splits them down the middle. So there's a little pathway between them. He knows exactly what to do. We might be confused, but Abram's not confused at all, nor would any Jew who read this at the time. This is a very familiar ceremony in Middle Eastern culture, and it's very significant. And so they would have this pathway with cut animals, and typically the servant, the vassal servant, would walk through, or the lord and the vassal would walk through together. And that would be like giving their signature. More than a handshake, very formal, yet relational. And as they walk through, they would bind one another by an oath, and they were saying this, if I fail to fulfill the terms of the covenant that we have agreed to, then I will be subject to death and be cut up like these animals we're walking through. I will be ripped apart in the same way if I fail in fulfilling my end. So what we see is once the sun goes down, 
These animals have been laid out. God has finished revealing how the plan's going to unfold. You have this smoking fire pot and flaming torch appear. And it's important to remember that Moses, the one who's receiving this, and the Jews, the ones who are hearing this, this is Moses who talked to a burning bush and God spoke to him. This is Moses who went on top of a mountain and there was so much fire and lightning on top of the mountain, people were afraid to even go near the mountain. This is the people who were led through the wilderness by a flaming pillar. So this isn't just some little torch you know, going through. This is the presence of God walking through this path, and that's exactly what happens. The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch pass between these different animals that are cut. And any Israelite, including Abram, who experienced this or read this, would have gone, oh my goodness. It should have the impact on us, but it's not, because we're unfamiliar to this, but they would have understood it clearly. And Basically, what God was saying was this, Abram, here's how you'll know. If I don't keep the terms of the covenant that I have promised you, then I shall be cut up and killed and ripped apart and destroyed like these animals. If I'm not faithful, God will be killed like a man. But that's not all he does. He's saying more than that because he never asks Abram to walk through. The servant never walks through. Not only was God promising to cut himself if he failed to fulfill the terms of the covenant, he was also promising to cut himself if Abram failed as well. God was promising to fulfill the responsibility of both sides of the covenant. He took responsibility for all of it. He said, if I, Abram, fail, yes, I will be killed. But if you, Abram, are not faithful, God will still die like a man. Now, I don't know of a more clear proclamation of the gospel in the Old Testament than that chapter. For that is the very thing Christ did for us on the cross. He, God, was perfectly faithful to his covenant, but we were not. And though we failed, he came down and he was ripped apart for our failure so that we might have life with him. Hebrews 6 reminds us that Jesus is supposed to be our anchor, the thing, the one, the event that gives us hope when the storms hit, when we wonder, can I really trust your promises? The cross is supposed to be the place you look to go like, yes. Hebrews 6 says it this way, In verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, he's already given us his word, which says it's impossible for God to lie. But I'm going to make an oath too. 
Someone speaking your language. We who have fled for the refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our anchor is the fact that Jesus has entered into the darkness for us and before us. Our hope is great. And a great hope is an immovable anchor against which fear has absolutely no power. The hope of the Gospel is intended to give our souls stability and our souls security that extends way beyond what we see, even what we can imagine, understand, or experience. Jesus made some very specific promises. He promises to save you when you repent and believe. He promises to give you rest if you will come to Him. He promises to give you what you need when you need it. Jesus promises to listen and to hear and to mediate your prayers. Jesus promises to fill you with joy in obedience. Jesus promises to give you life. He promises never to leave you, never to forsake you. And He promises to return again and make all things new. But life is like a boat which is battered by storms at times. Isn't it? Where you begin to go, are you really going to fulfill your promise? Are you really going to come through? There's often much fear in those storms. And so because of that, we need something that keeps us secure when all else, including ourselves, fail. When people fail us, when jobs fail us, when circumstances fail us, and then when we fail us and screw up our own circumstances. We need to know for certain that we can trust all of God's promises in the storm. And the question is, where is your anchor? See, most of us, most of the world trusts in something other than the finished work of Jesus Christ. Most of us put our anchor in things like relationships, or wealth, or power, or family, or job, or health, or happiness. And I tell you, if your anchor is in that, your anchor does not go deep enough because you have a hope that can be taken away. Any of those things can be taken away given enough time, age, suffering, you screwing up. Circumstances out of your control that change. It won't take but one storm to dislodge your anchor because it's way too shallow. And in time, because of that, you will drift away from God and as Paul says, you will make a shipwreck of your life. There is much to fear without a deep anchor because your hope is anchored in finding success or avoiding failure, and neither one of those are guaranteed. What is guaranteed is, guess what? You probably won't succeed in everything, and you certainly will fail in a lot. We must deny 
our need to define and create our own success, and we must acknowledge our failure. The only true anchor we have is Christ because nothing on earth can take away a hope that is found in heaven. We can trust God's promises because they're not dependent upon me finding success, me achieving, or avoiding, or not failing. They are guaranteed by Jesus' perfect success and His complete forgiveness of our failure. In Christ, we cannot fail. In Christ, we cannot fail. You may fail as a father and a mother. You may fail as a husband and wife. You may fail as a worker and having some amazing... You may fail at everything. But you cannot fail at anything in Christ. Not even death. God's promises have been guaranteed by the blood of His Son. God can't give any more than that. God has literally put His life on the line so that we would trust Him and not depend upon ourselves. God has put His life on the line so that we would hope in Him and not fear in our circumstances. It's my prayer that you will believe today as Abram believed, that we are saved not by the quantity of our faith, not by the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith, namely the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I'll close with a verse out of Romans chapter 4 where it speaks about Abram and it speaks to future disciples, namely us. It says this in verse 20. No belief made Abram waver from concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that he was able to do... No, that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. For it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We're no different than Abram. We're just as messed up, and we need just a glorious Savior. Genesis 15 is the most boldest proclamation of the gospel, I believe, in the book of Genesis, perhaps the Old Testament. And on Sunday morning, this is the clearest and boldest proclamation of the gospel. Essentially, for those who are in Christ, for those who are willing to acknowledge their failure and to receive the forgiveness and the love that Jesus has, what you're coming up is simply confessing that. I confess that, Lord, you planned for my failure. I'm going to stop pretending that I'm strong and pretending that I'm wise, but I'm actually going to receive that you have planned for my failure through the death of your son. But you also planned to give me righteousness. You planned not to leave me in my slavery to sin, but to redeem me and to send me and empower me to live a life that honors you and brings me joy. That is why we take communion. Because we all come here with some level of fear, wondering, Lord, will you fulfill your promise to me to do this? This is the proof that he has 
and that he will. Let's pray.